This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Bradford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alec on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information and answers all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today's show is being taped, so we are not taking any phone calls and I just wanted to give everybody that heads up. So uh, today's kind of a special show because I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, my recent time spent at the American Academy of Neurology meeting in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, at the meeting, this is an interesting meeting. There are 33,000 members of the American Academy of Neurology. It is the single largest organization of neurologists in the world. What's also interesting is that approximately 40% of our members are from foreign countries. And it's really, although it's the American Academy of Neurology, it has really distinguished itself internationally. So today we're going to uh, go over some of the interviews I did at the meeting with the incoming president, Dr. Ralph Sackle, and then Dr. Cynthia Hardin, who recently published guidelines through the American Academy of Neurology for a topic that... I think few people have heard about called SUDEP, Sudden Unexplained Death in Epilepsy. So we're going to chat with her a little bit about it. But what's interesting is how many things are changing in the field of neurology. It's great to be at a meeting like that to really kind of see which way things are going. And you see it in a lot of different ways. Um, for example, I spent a lot of time with exhibitors looking and seeing what what's out there and what's coming down um, the road. Uh, a lot of this, uh, for example, I do a lot of EMG, electromyography, looking at electrical studies of the nerve. And now the newer EMG machines, you can actually study the nerve electrically and visualize the nerve with a small ultrasound probe that's a little bit larger than a toothbrush and you put the probe over the nerve and you can actually visualize it on the same screen as you're looking at the physiology of that nerve. So again, uh, tremendous changes in technology. The other part of technology that caught my attention at the meeting is providing more information for the patient during the experience basically, of coming to the doctor, spending time in the office. How do we make this a more broad experience or encounter for a patient, giving them the most information? One of the things we hate to do, at least I certainly do, is leave a patient in a room because it's just uncomfortable. Any of us have been there, been to a doctor's office, don't want to be there. But uh, what's interesting now is they have these work boards, and the work boards provide information for the patient. And it's very interesting. They might be cooking tips or things such as that. But also, 
we're always struggling with a graphic representation, especially in neurology, but probably all of medicine, a graphic representation of what we're saying you have as a patient, uh, whether it be describing surgery, describing a, a colonoscopy procedure, or if I find something that's affected the nerve, which nerve is it, where is that nerve, what does it affect? And I was impressed by the amount of graphic systems that are involved and available for an office setting. Uh, one was a giant iPad, essentially. That's the only way I could describe it was a giant, they call it a workboard. It's a giant iPad, and you can slide and get pictures of every different part of the anatomy in great detail. You can draw on it with your finger um, to point out things to a patient. So I found that that's a significant part of where we're going in medicine is providing very clear and discreet information for patients so that they have that available. Sadly, one of the big topics in medicine is physician burnout. And the data are very interesting. So what's happening is physicians are being overwhelmed. Now, I always thought physician burnout was because you were dealing with such sad patients, um, patients who... Uh, you know, have brain tumors or are facing uh, severe crises in their lives. And that's not been the case with any specialty, even with uh, cancer doctors or pediatricians. That's not been the case. The case is for burnout where patients are, are actually physicians are having severe bouts of depression, overwhelming sadness, behavioral changes, and, and really all stemming from frustration. And based on all the surveys that have been performed, the frustration comes with desk medicine, uh, the term being used for not seeing patients, not doing procedures. It is sitting behind a computer, having to enter data and try to get things done through a computer setting. In addition, the number of forms you have to fill out has become tremendous. Everybody's got a form. None of them are electronic, by the way. But they're forms on top of forms on top. We have forms to keep people out of work. We have forms to let people back into work. We have forms to get people to be able to receive the medication we prescribe. Hey, used to be easy in this country. You wrote a prescription. That was what the doctor wanted. They took it to the pharmacy. They got the medication. Pretty simple. Not the case now. Now, you electronically produce the prescription, which is a good thing. You send it off to the pharmacy electronically. The patient gets to the pharmacy and now finds out that their insurance doesn't cover that medication. So you they have to file an appeal. That appeal means the physician now has to fill out more information, show other medications that may have been tried and failed before they can get the new medication. So again, paperwork, paperwork, paperwork is what's causing physician burnout. The other thing that shocked me was which specialties are having burnout. And it's so many specialties. I, I always thought, you know, as, as a neurologist, you know, there are certain areas of medicine where, for example, orthopedic surgery. It's a fairly lucrative field. Um, it must be very satisfying being a surgeon. You get to do a procedure and a patient gets better. 
they're down there with us having burnout, uh, again, because of all this paperwork. So it's some of the things you're going to be hearing more about in the press is this talk of physician burnout and how to get around it. What is the solution? And the solution is to really promote more autonomy for physicians um, so that they become more resilient to all these issues and seeing how we could provide support for physicians in the sense of having clerical folks, people with clerical skills, um, in my case, somebody who knows how to type fast, uh, being able to assist the physician to avoid burnout. So with that, those are some of the topics that were coming up at the national meeting. Uh, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my interview with Dr. Ralph Sacco. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WCIC News Talk 1080. While at the American Academy of Neurology meeting, I got to chat with Dr. Ralph Sacco. Dr. Sacco is professor and chairman of neurology at the University of Miami. He is best known for his work with the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association, specifically in the field of stroke. He's a well-known educator and researcher in that field and is now the president of the largest organization of neurologists in the world. With that, I'm going to play that interview, and hopefully you will find it as informative as I did. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I am at the American Academy in Neurology, and I have the honor of interviewing our incoming president, who has just taken over the reins of the American Academy in Neurology. It's Dr. Ralph Sacco. Dr. Sacco is professor and chairman of neurology at the University of Miami, and he is, as I mentioned, the president of the American Academy in Neurology, uh, well known for his academic credentials uh, in the field of stroke. Ralph, welcome to the show. Great. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, let's talk a little bit about your presidency now and neurology in general. What do you see are the challenges for neurologists uh, at this point in time and in the future? So we are the largest organization of uh, neurologists in the world right now, 33,000 members and growing. Not all of the neurologists, but all of us focused on uh, improving and promoting patient-centered, high-quality neurological care. And that's sort of in our mission and important. There are many challenges that we're dealing with. Uh, a couple of them include, one, we're concerned about the future. Our population is aging. There are many, many more people that I think will need access to neurologists or, and neurology healthcare providers in the future as they have increased risks of neurological conditions. So we're worried about the pipeline, the future, the number of neurologists that are out there. At the moment, um, there aren't enough. There aren't enough. People have long waiting times to get in to see a neurologist. So one of our concerns is making sure that we can improve access to high-quality neurological care. There are other things out there that, as a profession, we're focused on trying to improve quality with our axon registry that would be happy to talk to some more about, and, of course, dealing with the government and trying to deal with regulations that can affect both the profession of neurology as well as how we provide care to patients. Uh, I was chatting with some of the membership people, and it's interesting that you mentioned that not everybody in the organization is a neurologist. And increasingly, we're working with the so-called, I don't know if so I like the term, but the mid-level providers, uh, APRNs, PAs, who are uh, dedicated to neurology as we are. How do you see 
neurologists working with so-called mid-level providers in the future? Right. So it's a great question, Tony. Advanced practice providers, that's the term we use, are members of our organization. Small numbers of the 33,000, less than 1,000 right now, but they are one of the fastest growing groups. And I think advanced practice providers are a key to our further success. Because it's hard to just increase the number of neurologists overnight. But advanced practice providers, how can we be instrumental in improving their education, getting them further trained, getting them working closely with neurologists through our ad, uh, American Academy of Neurology. Advanced practice providers are a tremendous help in helping us provide care. In my own practice of neurology in the University of Miami, we have advanced practice providers. They help see patients, they can field calls, they can be the first door or follow-up. So we want to embrace advanced practice providers as much as possible improving their quality and getting them to help us provide high-quality neurological care to the many patients who need it. One of the obvious things at this meeting are, is the international flavor to our organization. Um, I believe the figure is 40 percent of our membership are foreign nationals, uh, either practicing in other countries, but it's a fairly large percentage, yet we are still the American Academy of Neurology. Right. Um, how do you see that growing? And uh, I might ask you for a comment on the new uh, changes in visas, which have really hampered a lot of us um, in practice. Right. So you're right first. We, do, we are the American Academy of Neurology, but international members are an important group. I think it's something like 6,000 or more are international members. And, and they have unique needs. So one, we want to make sure we're educating. And in some low to middle income countries, we provide educational resources for free via continuum. We also work in partnerships with the World Federation of Neurology, with the European Academy of Neurology, with the Pan-African Academy of Neurology to try to improve anything we can do to improve uh, neurology in low to middle income countries. During Terry Casino's presidency, there was an international task force, and that set some new recommendations. During my presidency, we have now reformulated the international subcommittee. Jerome Chin is leading that. He's a great guy. And we have now people from India, Indonesia, Latin America, Africa, and other low to middle income countries as part of our new mission. The visa situation, you know, we are a professional organization. Um, we try to stay out of politics a little bit, but we have a government relations committee, as you know, that deals with that. And I think right now what's important to us are um, the residents that we train, and many of them sometimes come from foreign countries, making sure that we can still uh, help them in their career development. Um, and other than that, uh, we're in evolving times that we will all uh, have to work with as we move forward. So. You're just beginning your two years, um, and uh, what would be some of your goals now in the next two years? We've talked about the challenges. We've talked about the changing times. But, you know, you've had time as the incoming president to think about your goals and, and where we should be moving as neurologists nationally and internationally. Can you share those with the audience a little bit? Sure. So the first is going to be the pipeline, which we touched on, getting more medical students to choose careers in neurology and getting advanced practice providers involved. The second one is improving quality. We have this great new Axon registry, and it's a quality improvement program, and we have over a 1,000 neurologists signed up and over a million patients in there where we're trying to improve quality. The third is 
research. You know, many of our patients have benefited from the amazing breakthroughs that have happened in neuroscience research over the last few years. We are worried about potential cuts. We are worried that there could be a 20% reduction in the NIH budget. That could be devastating, not just to neurologists, but to the patients we care for. So we're going to do everything we can to advocate for increasing research funding, and we're going to actually even try through our American Brain Foundation to increase funding. And the last is the future. I believe neurology is an interventional field. We can really make a difference and intervene and cure. I believe neurology needs to move into preventative neurology. We need to be talking not about people who already have neurological conditions, but who are at risk for them, to prevent them before they happen. All the new studies show that with Alzheimer's disease, with other neurodegenerative conditions, we can detect them earlier. If we treat earlier, we can alter the course and progression. So we need to move neurology in what I call the 21st century neurologist that's really intervening, curing, preventing, and regenerating patients with neurological conditions. Ralph, I want to thank you very much for your time. Uh, this has been enlightening and, uh, for me as well as the audience. So thank you, and best of luck with your presidency. Thank you. I look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. That was Dr. Ralph Sacco, president of the American Academy of Neurology, and his views on things that are coming forward uh, that affect neurologists and subsequently uh, affect patients of neurologists. So with that, I hope you found that informative. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Cynthia Hardin. Uh, Dr. Hardin is a neurologist specializing in epilepsy. We're going to talk about sudden unexplained death from epilepsy. We're back on Healthy Rounds, and we're chatting in this segment with Dr. Cynthia Hardin. And we're going to talk about epilepsy in general. Uh, I think there are a lot of misconceptions about epilepsy, so I wanted to clarify some of those. And wanted to talk about death from epilepsy. There are really two types of death. We, there are those that are explained, and that is uh, you know, people who have accidents, may have had a car accident, may have been on a ladder, uh, may have been in a dangerous situation where they had a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, a grand mal seizure, that would have produced a dangerous situation where they passed on. But then there are these other cases of unexplained death and epilepsy, uh, which are fairly uh, common worldwide. So with that, uh, we're going to hear from Dr. Cynthia Hardin. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I am at the American Academy of Neurology annual meeting in Boston, Massachusetts, and today is April 25th, 2017. I'm here with Dr. Cynthia Hardin. Dr. Hardin is Director of Clinical Epilepsy Services at the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. She is a professor of neurology and is the chair of the epilepsy section of the American Academy of Neurology. She is one of the authors of the recently published practice guideline for the American Academy of Neurology titled Sudden Unexplained Death in Epilepsy, Incidence Rates and Risk Factors. Cynthia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's my great pleasure to be here. Let's back up a little bit. Before we talk about the actual uh, practice guideline, can we talk a little bit about epilepsy in general? For example, approximately how many people in the United States suffer from epilepsy? It's approximately 1%, a little bit less than 1%, so 300,000 people. Um, so 
can you talk a little bit in general about epilepsy? What is epilepsy? Epilepsy is the, um, it's defined by having recurrent seizures, but also the comorbidities of the condition. It's recognized that um, recurrent seizures, which constitute epilepsy, um, are also associated with, in general, other uh, uh, comorbid factors like problems with either cognition, possibly depression, um, and uh, other uh, neurologic issues or even reproductive issues that go along with this brain dysfunction. This, um, the extent of the comorbidities varies um, with the type of epilepsy, and um, it's well recognized that having recurrent seizures can affect people's lives adversely, and they can become depressed and anxious, for example. Well, when people think of epilepsy now, they typically think of the grand mal seizure, as it was previously known. And over history, we've seen a lot of descriptions of seizure. Can you talk a little bit about some of the different seizure types that are not necessarily what people would term grand mal? Well, um, the general perception of a seizure is the generalized tonic-clonic or so-called grand mal seizure. That type of seizure is really the most severe and evolved type of seizure. Um, it is characterized by uh, the tonic phase where people extend their arms and become stiff for a few seconds and then have the clonic phase which is shaking. Um, that lasts about 90 seconds. So that's the most severe type of epilepsy that involves the entire brain and there's loss of consciousness associated with that type of seizure. However, um, more a more frequent seizure type would be the focal seizures or the more localized seizures in the brain. Those seizures um, are are an expression of where the seizure is starting in the brain. For example, if the seizure starts in the area of the brain that mediates movement, the seizure may simply be an abnormal movement in one limb, for example, without loss of consciousness. If the seizure um, starts in the areas of the brain that involve the temporal lobes, um, there can be an alteration of awareness, but not much behavioral or movement change. Maybe just stop the patient, the person can just stop what they're doing, sort of, we call it frozen, just stare, maybe have some simple um, and subtle movements like lip smacking or, or small hand movements, and they're very subtle. Um, there is usually loss of awareness with this type of seizure, but uh, the they are not generally perceived as seizures, whereas these are among the most frequent seizure types that people experience. These are now in the new terminology of the seizure definition, um, seizure definitions that was just revised again by the International League of Epilepsy. These type of seizures are called focal seizures with loss of awareness. So that's probably even the most frequent seizure type. Um, but if that seizure type, uh, the focal seizures, um, are not um, inhibited from spreading throughout the brain by the use of medications, for example, or the brain's own spontaneous inhibition, they will progress to the bigger seizures, the more um, evolved and generalized seizures, specifically the generalized tonic-clonic or grand mal seizures. So it's a matter of localization in, in, a, in a lot of ways. 
Over the course of the past century, we've made a lot of progress in the treatment of epilepsy. Yes. Obviously, we've gone from institutionalization to the fact that, as a sports neurologist, we have people with epilepsy participating in the highest level of sports. Mm -hmm. What would you attribute that to? What has been the greatest success in the treatment of epilepsy? Hmm. Well, um, I think the greatest success has been the development of medications. Um, Prior to 1938, we had a couple of medications. We had the um, element, the uh, bromide, which was a treatment. And it actually worked fairly well, but it was highly sedating. And a related molecule, phenobarbital, was available around that, around that time, too, around 1880. But a molecule that is also similar to phenobarbital was developed in 1938, phenytoin or dilantin. And that, I think, changed the landscape for a lot of people. Um, other, uh, another m treatment in the same family, carbamazepine, was developed. Um, however, really it wasn't, we only had about three or four drugs and include, and, and, and that also includes the sedatives, the benzodiazepines, Valium, Klonopin, we used a lot of those drugs until there was this explosion of, um, of anti-seizure treatments that started around the early 90s. And that um, was a result of decades of research on um, understanding neurotransmitters in the brain, excitatory neurotransmitters, inhibitory neurotransmitters, what will excite the brain, what will inhibit the brain, and using the understanding of those um, brain's uh, chemicals to develop molecules, to develop drugs that would manipulate those, um, those, uh, those activities of the brain, this, the receptors for inhibition or excitation. And so then, you know, those decades where we didn't have drugs were really an area, a time of, of um, research. And then we had this explosion of drugs. Some of the medicines that we... Um, that have come out have been very specific. They act on a specific neurotransmitter. But um, we continue to have new drugs coming out that have refined even that wave of medications that came out in the 1990s to make the drugs for epilepsy better tolerated, longer lasting, um, uh, and associated with more clinical research so we understand more about what they do. So. Um, I think one of the problems in epilepsy overall is that there is a stigma around it. So um, in spite of that stigma, there has been a lot of attention to the, the illness and a lot of development of the drugs. So it's still underfunded in general compared to, to, compared to um, neurologic conditions or other medical conditions that are much less prevalent. So in the epilepsy community, we're always fighting for a voice, for a, a piece of the pie for this patient population that's really large. With, with all our progress, I find it somewhat ironic that we're here today talking about death in epilepsy. We're going to take a short break, and then I'm going to be back again with Dr. Cynthia Hardin. We're talking about sudden unexplained death in epilepsy and a recent practice guideline that she published through the American Academy of Neurology. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. 
We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're with Dr. Cynthia Hardin, who is Director of Clinical Epilepsy Services for the Mount Sinai Health Center. We're also specifically talking about a recently published guideline for the American Academy of Neurology titled Sudden Unexplained Death in Epilepsy, Incidence Rates and Risk Factors. Cynthia, I just find it ironic that we're talking about death in epilepsy with all the progress we've made. Can you talk a little bit about that, some of the general causes, and then specifically what SUDEP is? Um, Well, we are talking about death in epilepsy because um, we still have a significant proportion of people with epilepsy who continue to have generalized tonic-clonic seizures Uh, in spite of the advances we've made with epilepsy medications and epilepsy surgery. Um, So the reasons that people continue to die, specifically from seizures, are not all related to the SUDEP, or sudden unexpected death in epilepsy. There are a number of accidental, there's a high rate of accidental deaths throughout the world. Um, Not so much maybe not so much in the U.S., but in China, people die from drowning in the, being out in the fields and, and, bur- and burns, you know, being near a fire. Um, uh, but people drown in the water, people drown in their bathtubs, so that's a big cause of, a, of death in epilepsy. Unfortunately, there is also a high rate of suicide um, for people living with epilepsy, higher than expected. Um, uh, there's also a Due to unclear reasons, possibly the medications, there's a very um, much higher rate of cardiovascular risk factors in people with epilepsy, so they have a a higher um, risk of dying just from heart disease, for example. So, but SUDEP is a is really a major cause of death in people with epilepsy, and what it means is a a, it's sudden, it's unexplained, so uh, it it occurs. Are thought to occur suddenly within minutes, and it's unexplained. We don't know why it occurs, um, and it's associated in people who have epilepsy. But what has really emerged from observational studies is that SUDEP most often, overwhelmingly, occurs after a generalized tonic-clonic seizure, the most severe type of seizure that we talked about yes. um, before. So... Um, what it looks like from our um, in-depth analysis of the available data to, that we underta- undertook to create this guideline, the way to prevent SUDEP is really to stop these severe seizures, to reduce their frequency, to hopefully stop their occurrence altogether. And that will reduce the risk of a patient having uh, suffering from SUDEP. How often does this occur, SUDEP? Well, uh, interestingly, it's it's considered infrequent um, in children, even rare, one uh, per year out of uh, 4,500 children with epilepsy, one per 4,500 patient years for children. So that would be considered rare or infrequent. However, um, for uh, adolescents and adults, the rate increases to about one in 1,000. Um, patient year. So one out of a thousand patients with epilepsy per year will die from SUDEP. 
So it's not, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's considered infrequent, but it's really a m- much too high number. What's the take-home message? What do people need to know about SUDEP? The take-home message from our guideline is really simple um, and um, intuitive, but something that really patients and their caregivers need to think about, digest, and act upon. And our guideline is, is, it has recommendations that say what people should do in order to reduce the risk of SUDEP. And that is work with your physician to make sure the generalized tonic-clonic seizures are controlled, that they don't occur. And that is the single most important thing to reduce the risk of SUDEP. Is compliance the big problem? That's a very interesting question. I, you know, I think and my colleagues believe that compliance is a problem. We weren't able to demonstrate that necessarily in our review of the literature, um, but I think that's a very subtle thing. You know, it's a very individualized um, issue, but uh, certainly compliance, you know, is something that should be discussed at every visit and encouraged. Um, compl- I think you, it's fair to say compliance with medications it reduces seizures, so something we definitely want to encourage. Well, this has to be a much bigger problem in developing nations. Uh, from my work in Haiti, um, people die from epilepsy all the time, but mm. that's because there's no access to medication. Right. Um, so it's, so it, it really is more of a compliance and staying on your regimen issue, even for anyone who has epilepsy. I think you're absolutely right. Um, the, uh, that's definitely part of the message of this guideline. And, I, and it's very interesting. The World Health Organization has designated uh, anti-seizure medicines as a, quote, best buy, which means they're generally inexpensive and they work really well. So if people just had access to these medications and took them, were compliant, as you um, emphasized, the world would definitely have a reduced burden of epilepsy and seizures. Um, So I think that's part of the challenge for the epilepsy community in the future is to really try to make sure in in developing countries that there's access. Because the medications, you're right, they work in general. People just need access to them. Well, I just want to take time to thank you for your time today, but more importantly, thank you for everything you do for patients with epilepsy uh, in the United States and around the world. This is important um, that people become more aware of this because this is a treatable condition and people need to understand that. Um, So thank you for your time today and thank you for putting together uh, this practice guideline. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me to be with you. I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Cynthia Harden and Dr. Ralph Sacco, for taking time at the American Academy of Neurology meeting uh, to chat with me uh, a little bit about what's going on in the field of neurology. Many thanks to our studio producer, Mike Olko, who was kind enough to put this together uh, and uh, fuse all these Uh, wonderful interviews together. Jeff Chandler and Sadie Bride are in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor at registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy. 
This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.